0: The deep meaning of the ninth configuration uh, is really an attempt to find a solution uh, to the problem of evil in, in the face of the uh, incredible suffering of the innocent. Which, and I'm not talking about suffering caused by the will of man, that kind of evil, moral evil. I'm talking about the kind of physical evil that's built into the fabric of the universe. The ninth configuration doesn't give an answer, but it gives an an alternative mystery that you're forced to think about, namely the mystery of goodness.
1: Welcome back to a brand new, exciting episode of Not a Bomb Podcast. This is the movie review podcast where we go back and talk about movies that bomb theatrically or the critics just didn't like. Uh, Brad, this is your oh. pick.
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to, it uh, is a
1: yeah, it is a pick, buddy. Uh, I'll tell you what. Every you know, it's Memorial Day. We're recording on a Monday, and uh, happy Memorial Day to everybody, and, and especially to those who uh, served and you know, the reason why we are celebrating this, but all the other podcasts are are in full summer movie season and they're talking about the popcorn hits, right? You picked a film that I think is the farthest from that type of film that we could think of. Right. And yeah, this is
2: the inverse of a summer blockbuster.
1: Okay. So what, what did you pick?
2: I picked um, William Peter Blatty's 1980 psychological drama Question mark, uh, the ninth configuration, or some might even call it Twinkle Twinkle Killer Kane.
1: Yes, bit of a cult film. And to join us down this rabbit hole, Jose's back from Watch Skip Plus. Uh, Jose, thank you for, for coming on for a second week. I am back. <laughs> this is exciting. You're going from Superman for the Quest for Peace to the ninth configuration, the ninth configuration. Yes. Fast and faithful. Shall we call it the fast, fast and the faithful. faithful? I like it. <laughs> um, yeah. So we're, we're talking about a film that is part of the faith trilogy. So this is the second installment and you're like, well, what the heck's a faith trilogy? So William Peter Blady had basically written three books and this is sort of the middle one. The first one is the exorcist, which they made a, a little film that I think everybody heard about. Then comes along the ninth configuration, which was actually the reworking of an earlier version of his 1966 novel called Twinkle, Twinkle, Killer Kane, which Brad just referenced. And the third one in this faith trilogy is Legion, which is kind of a it's it's a bit of a sequel to The Exorcist. It was it was made as Exorcist three. That's the film version of it. So um, before we talk about this, uh, a couple of questions for you guys, just a level set. Is this anybody's first time watch of this film? Yes. Oh, for you? Okay. Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. about you, Jose? Yep. Not mine. Nope. Okay. Did you see it once, twice before? or?
3: I think I've probably seen it about three times before.
1: Oh, okay. I've seen yeah. it once before. So the the old DVD uh print when it came out is when I discovered it. Uh second question. I, oh, go ahead, Brad.
2: I, I was going to say I'd seen bits and pieces of this. I don't know where or when, but you know when you have either that it was like some weird deja vu cuz some of these scenes I was like I've seen this somewhere before, but okay. I had no recollection of where it would have been or time frame or anything. Okay. I could have entered a matrix. I have no idea.
1: No, that's fine. That's <laughs> fine. So we're, we're, we're talking about the faith trilogy. So to just level set real quick, um, little, little background on where you fall on this particular topic of faith or uh, a higher being or even religion in general. Uh, <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. What an opener how, how how, how, topic. I, Here we I, go. I think it's something we should probably just kind of say, Hey, before we talk about a film, that really deals with this question of like is is there a god? It would be interesting to find out personally because when you watch a film, you do sort of uh, bring your denominator of experiences and ideas to that viewing, right? And and I'll start. I, I grew up Catholic, and right around high school, I, I was like, well, I, I want to go check out these other denominations. Now, my parents weren't really happy about this, and went to the, all these other churches and then found out, Hey, I like, I like Quakerism. So I was a Quaker for four years in high school. And then um, the college I went to is actually Lutheran university. And uh, I have an English writing degree. And one of the things that I studied for a few years was linguistics and the best way to learn about languages and, and the history of languages is you go through and, and study the Bible. And so we ended up reading all the different variations of it and, and watching language change. So the bigger question is, you know, do I believe in a higher being or, or something of that nature? Absolutely. I, I don't know what it is. I don't know if I could define myself as a Christian or uh, put a label on it. I, I think I have, <laughs> I have more in common with Buddhism maybe, but either way, it, to, the concept of something bigger than myself an intellectual being or whatever you want to call it. Do I believe in that? Yeah. So where do you guys fall in this realm?
2: Jose, do you want to go next or should I? Uh, You can. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, so I I grew up in a Catholic household. Uh, I'm still somewhat a practicing Catholic. I have um, been a little bit disappointed in the way the church has handled a lot of um, taboo topics. Uh, mostly women in the church, pedophilia in the church, molestation in the church, things like that that have been covered up and priests have been moved around the country and and enabled and to prey on children. Um, so it, it kind of has disenfranchised me quite a bit. Uh, I would still say I believe in the tenets of Catholicism up to a certain point. I would be what they would call a buffet Catholic where I pick and choose uh, some things. Um, I like that term, (laughs) but yeah, uh, but I would consider, I I believe again in a higher being Um, not sure exactly what the definition of that would be. Do I believe that he is a white man with killer abs? I do not. Um, If he was from the middle East, like we say, He's probably not a white guy. Um but he's but, he could still have killer abs. Let's he's still yeah, oh yeah, yeah. he's still good. Yeah. I mean he's still good. All that walking, <laughs> yeah. he's gonna be at least kind of lean. And he probably um,
1: benches 350 at least.
2: Oh, bro. Yeah. Jesus Christ was yeah.
1: Yeah. All right. He had to like, move that lift, rock you Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I mean.
2: um but yeah, I I definitely have uh I would definitely call myself a spiritual person. I think Religion has gotten way out of hand, and it it has definitely pushed me away from le- religious people. Um, but uh, but yeah,
1: okay. That's me. W- what about you, Jose? What What is a little bit of your background in this uh, topic?
3: So I'm first generation Filipino, and uh, I am definitely I definitely grew up Catholic. Went to mass every Sunday. Went to Sunday school, catechism confirmation baptism all of it um and uh i mean i don't know i i never really i I didn't hate it um i would often pray and and do things and i can point to a couple things i think in my life where i feel like there has been some spiritual or uh, divine intervention as it were Uh, i won't get into those things but Someone uh, came out
2: of a bathroom and shot a gun at you and missed six times and it's exactly p- pulse fiction <laughs> reference.
3: Yeah. reference. Yeah, no, exactly. That was
1: good. That was good. <laughs> Goddamn hand cannon. Okay.
3: Go ahead. Um and then in college, almost like almost kind of like you, Troy, uh, I took a world religions course, which involved us going to like five or six different religious ceremonies, which was kind of awkward, I guess, because I'm like, huh, I'm doing it, I'm in the class, or what have you. But I was able to experience many different uh, religions, like a Baptist, um, the Baha'i faith, if you've ever heard of that. Um, And I would probably call myself a a recovering Catholic because of some of the things that Brad has discussed. Like, I think my beliefs and how I feel about the world and see... Uh, people and LGBTQ plus people um, didn't square quite with, uh, you know, the religion I was brought up in. Uh, I have discovered like the tenets of Buddhism and the writings of like Thich Nhat Nhat, and and uh, you know just sort of delved into a lot of uh, Buddhist scripts uh, and listened to a ton of Buddhist podcasts, read. Uh, Buddhist stuff, etc., and um, I do adhere to those tenets because I do like some of those. Um, although I will say I do engage in non virtues such as gossip and <laughs> and, and and other things but uh yeah i can't remember the last time i went to a mass um i do believe that there is something out there whether we call that the higher power the powers that be could be even a feminine entity i don't know um also like you know frequencies i guess in a way there maybe there's some sort of higher frequency out there that mm-hmm. like vibrates and resonates with us and you know you're an astro- you're an astrology guy right Yes, that too. <laughs> and palmistry. And there was a bit with tarot as well. So it's kind of, I, I kind of been ha- all over the place, but you, I do you believe dabbled that in things kind of,
1: outside of the traditional, like church going religions.
3: I, I would say so. I, I would say like a lot of the characters here, I did engage in my own sort of quest for meaning slash, you know, does, does it exist out there? Is there something out there that's, beyond us that's moving us towards events in our
2: lives or things in our lives. Yeah. Okay. I respect that a lot. The kind of the quest for knowledge in the, in the curiosity Um, I've always been curious, but not brave enough to step foot in like a Baptist church or a Lutheran church or anything like that. Just because once you become ingrained in the Catholic church, it feels like, you know, like if you ever brought a friend to like a mass before, they're completely confused and there's all these uh like chants and and party tricks that are going on. Why um, are we standing? Why are we kneeling?
3: Yeah, What's happening? Hey, that's, that, yeah. <laughs>
1: that that's why in high school, going to all those other denominations, when, when I found the Quaker church, it was it was it was very much everything that I liked about religion, but it was stripped of all of the ceremony. And, uh, and the, I, I, you know, was, the
2: exclusivity of it. all. Yeah, it
1: was, it was really on the, you know, going to church on a Sunday and participating in the Bible classes and everything else was, was much different in that versus growing up Catholic, being an altar boy, um, you know, all the pomp and circumstance, which I guess I, I appreciate to a certain degree, um, and even the rigor behind it. Uh, but, but I, I found that I learned more in the Quaker church and a lot more just, studying the Bible from a, a linguistics perspective and and how um, churches, societies and everything else have changed certain things um, and even even words and condensed some expanded others in order to fit um, what was going on with you know, society at that point. But I, I think it's fair to say the three of us. And the, the reason why I asked this question is, I mean, we're talking about a film from 1980 that is part of a faith trilogy in this film is really a religious thriller um, more than anything. If, if you had to kind of boil it down into sort of, sort of a genre, that, that's it. And so to, in summary, I think we could all say, okay, we, we all come from a religious background. It sounds like Catholicism was, was our gateway drug, I guess you could say. <laughs> uh, and, and, and so we have exposure to that and we have exposure to spirituality and we all, in some shape or form, believe in some type of higher divinity, right? That, that's a fair assessment. Now, what's curious about this too is I like the fact that through those stories and everything else, we're all sharing this, hey, we went looking for something. We, we went to kind of expand our our knowledge base of religion, either in what we were practicing or, or kind of test the waters and other things. So I think that is super interesting, especially when we get down to sharing our thoughts on this film because I think that background will influence us a little bit. But before we get to that section of our little podcast, let's have Brad take us back because we're talking about movies that bombed, right? So we had, let's find out, did, did this thing bomb from a theatrical perspective or did it just bomb from critics or, you know, how did this play out when it got released?
2: Kind of a curious release on this one. So February 29th of 1980. So what do we know about 1980 if it's released on February 29th? Ooh.
1: Um, it's a leap, leap year. year. Yeah. Leap year. Yeah. Okay. Ah. Anyway, sorry.
2: Uh, with a reported budget of $2.5 million, there is actually not a box office return on this one. Um, Blatty had it looked at um, through some test screens. Warner Brothers then gave it back to Blatty and he sold it to another distributor, which was uh FUD and they re-released it and kind of marketed it as Twinkle Twinkle Killer Kane. Uh, but even then I couldn't find any uh, box office return on that either. So it says it is a fine. It's a commercial failure um, at 2.5 million.
1: Yeah. Can I throw in a couple of more details that I found on yeah. that? Okay. Yeah, go ahead. So there was Because no, I went
2: digging on that and I couldn't, still couldn't find anything box office-wise.
1: Yeah. From from what I read was <laughs> uh, a studio wasn't going to fund this thing. So Blady decided to raise the film's $4 million budget. That's what he was going for um, by putting up half the money himself and then persuading PepsiCo, the conglomerate, to provide the remaining $2 million So I've seen the 2.5 million, but in some of the stories it was Blady put 2 million out and then found PepsiCo to do the other two. And then of
2: of Pepsi, fame, right? PepsiCo of the Pepsi fame.
1: Yes. Yeah. Of Pepsi Cola. Exactly. Indeed. Um, And (laughs) as writer director, Blady was promised complete creative control over the production. um, But the film had to be shot in Hungary. And uh, (laughs) this is where it gets really strange. So, They, the United Film Distribution, UFD, which was affiliated with United Artist Theater Chain and best known for releasing George A. Romero's Dawn of the Dead, picked up the film for a planned December 1979 release. However, the company dropped the picture and Warner Brothers picked it up. And after poor box office returns in its test markets, Warner Brothers um, returned the film to blady and allowed him to take it to another distributor then ufd reacquired the rights and released it in other markets under twinkle twinkle killer claim killer Kane, and it was not a commercial success upon its cinematic release
2: and then it gets a re-release it was re-edited and re-released in 1985 by New World Pictures, I believe. And mm-hmm. they used the ninth uh, configuration title then as well. So really weird. Yeah. Um, and,
1: and when it got released, this is the other thing. All, so it, it got nominated for Golden Globe Awards. It was nominated for Best Picture, Best Screenplay, and Best Supporting Actor. And it won Best Screenplay.
2: Yeah. Bloody yeah. has a Golden Globe because yeah. of this movie. Crazy, mm-hmm. right? Yes. And I
3: think it was, I, I believe... Uh, Let me check my notes. I believe it was up against uh, the Elephant Man, Raging Bull, uh, Elephant Man, of course, one of the writers includes David Lynch, um, Ordinary People, and Raging Bull, one of whom is Paul Schrader. Crazy. went on to write Dominion, the prequel to The Exorcist.
2: (laughs) Small world. Okay. So critically, I was floored by this. The ninth configuration sits at an 80% with the critics. That's with 15 reviews. In a seventy-six with the audience, wow, which is pretty high. That's pretty cool. awesome for the subject material.
1: Um, but I, I would preface fifteen critics, and I think if you were to go back and look at the audience score, I don't think a lot of people know about this film.
2: No, it's only what—that's with, with twenty-five hundred uh, audience reviews, which is one of the smaller ones we've done. Yeah, most of them at least have five thousand.
1: Yeah, this so. this one's a I, it. You can get on Blu-ray. I think uh, it's published outside of the country, right? Scream Factory put it out in limited release. It's now out of print, and Warner Brothers had put out uh, a DVD at Mm -hmm. at some point.
2: Yep. Um, Okay. So films you could have seen in February of 1980, we have American Gigolo, The Fog, Caligula. Oh, oh boy! Cannibal Holocaust. (laughs) <laughs> oh yes. Cannibal Holocaust. Um The Last Married Couple in America, Hero at Large, and Foxes. But that's a pretty that's a very yeah, diverse slate of films months. right there. Yeah. Weird month. So there you go. <laughs> All right. Kind of again, a weird release. And I looked at Movie Guide because I was like, this is a religious film. Would they have reviewed it? They did not.
3: Really? I think they yeah. would have I th- I think they would have been at odds with some of the, I guess things that the, that the characters were spouting and some of the violence.
2: Well, and also the, the, the raising of well, we'll get to, but it's not like praise Jesus sort of faith movie. It's It's, taking an intellectual, is is there a
3: Jesus to praise? Um, Exactly. But but I get, I bet you it would have had a positive
1: number. (laughs) <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah, I, I, we need to email. We need to email them and tell them to review this quick because I would be curious where it would sit on that. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, Jose, you always do an amazing job of talking about the people behind the camera or what you refer to as below uh, the line, right? Yeah. So I'm going I'm to kick it over to you. Let's let's talk about all of the people who worked behind the scenes to bring this thing to life. So, uh, essentially, this is kind of like a one-person
3: show, because our writer-producer-director is William Peter Blatty. Blady? Blatty? It's, I always said Blatty. I always said Blatty, too. I'm not sure. Um, unfortunately, Mr. Blatty passed away in Bethesda, Maryland. Woohoo! hoo um, Our state, Maryland, not the fact that he passed away.
0: Yeah, um, well, I was like, wow. But he, wow. The, sorry. Uh, yeah, he's okay. dead. You're not a fan? Hey, hey.
3: <laughs> um, then it, well, so since 2000, he actually called Bethesda his home after he sort of like left Hollywood and left um, publishing. He did die of Kahler's disease, which is multiple myeloma. That affects the blood and its production of blood cells in the bone marrow. Um, he has a very, very interesting life. He is of Lebanese descent. He got a scholarship to Georgetown University uh, and got his bachelor's in in 1650. And he claimed that those years were the best of his life. And he also has a master's in English from George Washington University. So definitely East Coasty. Um he believe it or not Wait, has what worked. Is six, what is 1650? Uh oh, I'm sorry, 19. 19- Fifty. I don't know why oh. I wrote sixteen fifty. I'm just to say that 19. that guy's old. He got three
2: hundred.
3: <laughs> Man, wow. William Peter Blatty is uh, an immortal. I, uh, <laughs> I want to know
1: what his diet was.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, I was typing very quickly. Uh, he also he also has alternately worked. Uh, jobs like selling vacuums door to door. He was a beer truck driver. He's also a United Airlines ticket agent before earning his master's. Um, but he also then served in the U.S. Air Force in the, get this, psychological warfare division from 1950 to 1954. Wow, and ascended in ranks to first lieutenant. Eventually working in Beirut for the U.S. Information Agency. Curiously enough, that that aspect of his life and some of his early life would be the basis of his first novel, which way to Mecca Jack. Um, he followed those up with some comedy novels, John Goldfarb, please come home, which was later made into a movie. And then what we've aforementioned twinkle, twinkle killer Kane, which is strange that they listed as a comic novel, but he did rewrite that into the ninth configuration. Um, Curiously enough, he was on the quiz, uh, the Groucho Marx quiz show, Um, You Bet Your Life. And he actually won $10,000 on that. And when Marx asked him, what are you going to do with your money? He said, I'm going to take a year off and write a novel. And apparently what he was working on eventually became The Exorcist. Um, He has also dabbled in screenwriting, which I did not know until I started diving into Blatty's uh, life. So in the 60s he was writing comedies under the pseudonym Bill Blatty and eventually hooked up with Blake R- Blake Edwards as well. So he's written films like Shot in the Dark, Gun, The Musical Darling Lily with Julie Andrews Andrews and Rock Hudson, The Great Train Robbery, that's the one from 1969. Mm-hmm. Um and I mean he started writing the Danny Kaye movie The Man from Diner from the Diners Club and Warren Beatty's Promise Her Anything. And then, as I had mentioned before, adapted one of his own novels into um, a movie as well. Uh, he's married four times and has seven children. Incidentally, the Blu-ray copy that I have, the film is dedicated to his son, Peter Vincent Galahad Bladdy, who died at 19 from a very rare heart disorder. So this is his directorial debut. Um as uh, Troy had mentioned, he won for Best Screenplay. This was also nominated at the Golden Globes for Best Picture as well. And unfortunately, it was uh, a commercial flop despite the critical claim. Um, eventually, he would do, obviously, he would write uh, the screenplay for The Exorcist. And he won Best Adapted Screenplay that year for um, as an, uh, for an Oscar. And the movie itself was also nominated as Best Picture. And he was a producer on that. He would go on to um, direct uh, Legion or Exorcist 3, as it was called, and that was his final screenplay and directorial credit. Uh, our DP is Jerry Fisher. He's a noted British cinematographer and producer. Uh, his first credited DP film is 1967's Accident, starring Dirk Bogard, who's a great actor. Uh, he also did Tony Richardson's film adaptation of Hamlet with Nicole Williamson and Anthony Hopkinson. Hopkins. Williamson incidentally was supposed to star in this, but I think that Stacy Keach and Scott Wilson were last minute replacements, um, which is incredible considering how wonderful their performances are in this. Uh, he also lends 1970s Ned Kelly with Mick Jagger, worked consistently through the 70s on films like Adventure of Sherlock Holmes's Smarter Brother, which I've seen is actually quite funny, Island of Dr. Murrow, that's the one with Burt Lancaster and Michael uh, York, and the screen ad- adaptation of Mozart's Don Giovanni. He's probably best known for his output in the 80s, though. He was the director of photography for classics like Victory uh, with Sylvester Stallone. Wolfen, Yellowbeard, the TV movie Samson and Delilah, which I remember watching repeatedly on television for some strange reason. Holcroft Covenant with Michael Caine, Highlander, and the original... Don't you dare forget
2: to my movie.
1: (laughs) 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 We were due for a Christopher Lambert impersonation.
3: (laughs) Um, He shot Highlander and the original Man on Fire from Scott Glenn. Later remade into Tony Scott's *Man on Fire*, and our production designer is Bill Malley. He had worked on *The Exorcist* as a production designer, as well as the genre thriller *The Fury* prior to this film. Oh. And then he went on to work on movies as a production designer for uh, for films like *Mommy Dearest*, uh, *Star Chamber*, which is a great sort of like political paranoia thriller. It's for really Michael good. Douglas. Yep. Chevy Chase's Deal of the Century, which also features Sigourney Weaver, Vision Quest. And then strangely, he was also the production designer for Dr. Giggles and eventually moved into production design for television in the 90s. He was the production designer for the sci-fi show Sliders and the other sci-fi show Seven Days and the TV movies 12 Angry Men. That was in 1997. And then Amelia Earhart with Diane Keaton. Uh, Just a couple, just one more shout out genie epper is featured in this she's one of the uh bikers she has the blonde hair she gets thrown into the wall okay in a very strange edit um but she is a legendary stunt woman she was one of the mainstay stunt doubles for linda carter in wonder woman uh also doubled linda wagner lindsey wagner sorry in the bionic woman doubled kate jackson and tanya roberts on charlie's angels and kathleen turner in romancing the stone her resume is completely out of control. Think of any big action stunt film from the 70s and 80s, and more than likely her name was on there. Her whole family, the Eppers, are like a big stunt royalty sort of like, you know, embedded in Hollywood. And his, her brother, actually, Gary Epper, is this film's stunt coordinator. And fun fact she donated her kidney to 6'6 blonde Adonis actor
1: Ken Howard. That's strange, right?
2: Chester yeah. did stunts for rush hour two. So Troy, there's your Jackie Chan and Kill Bill Volume Two.
1: Oh nice. So if she you're knows. if you're playing not a bomb bingo, you get two squares for a QT mm-hmm. and Jackie Chan reference. There awesome.
3: you go. <laughs> uh, and that's that's pretty much any, everybody I had. I don't know if
1: if you guys had. Uh, no, that's anybody. dude. Nobody can touch a, your thurinism. It's basically
3: man. a blatty a blatty project. It is. It is in fact a blatty project.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it, it, we'll, we'll get to that when we talk about the production too. Um, in, in terms of some stories, but let's start with the cast. I mean, goodness gracious, what a cast! Uh, one yeah. person that I'll probably because there's there's a lot of people to talk about, but I do want to spend a little time on, with one person, and that's Stacy Keach as Colonel Vincent Kane. So Stacy Keach if if you look at sort of his resume
2: Spoil- uh, spoiler alert
1: what no he's he's I know, but, what
2: I know but kind of a spoiler
1: how is that a spoiler
2: is it no kind he of. they
1: he shows up
2: as, I know but okay. <laughs> oh my gosh man two
0: hundred and
1: fifteen acting credits yeah. for Mr Keach uh <laughs> if you grew up in the eighties. You, you'd probably recognize him as Mickey splains, Mike hammer. So oh, yeah. around this time period, I mean, this, this is a, he's, he's in everything, movies, TV, et cetera. In 1978, the biggest battle also in 78 gray lady down also in save 78 slave of the cannibal God also in 78, which when I hear the, the name Stacy Keach, I, I think of this movie automatically up in smoke Cheech and Chong's up in smoke. So he plays Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, also in 78, two solitudes and then does the ninth configuration in 1980 follows that up same year with the long riders, the Walter Hill film. Uh, I'm not exactly a huge Stacey Keach fan. I mean, I do enjoy his performances, but he's not one of those actors from the seventies, eighties or anything that I just specifically seek out his work, but I don't know where you guys land on him. I mean, Jose, what what do you think? Or go ahead, Brad.
2: Okay. I was just going to say he's Phantasm and Batman's Mask of the Phantasm, which Troy and I just added to our list because oh, it's yeah. getting a four K release. So I have to add, uh, say that because I think well, I won't spoil what I think of that, but yeah, he's Phantasm.
1: Okay. What about you, Jose? You you stace Skeet I
3: am. I love him. I think he's he's his cleft palate and and his gorgeous square jawed looks make him very very distinct. But I just remember. I mean i I had to. As I grew up, I went back and watched his stuff, especially, like, the the Mike Hammer stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was always, like, in, in like, TV movies, or I would turn on cable, and he'd be in some movie. He was and in I everything, if I feel like, like, in the 80s, yeah. yeah. he's practically in everything. And also, I remember seeing his brother, James Keach and being like, hey, he kind of looks like. <laughs> um, because he was, uh, you would see him in... Um, you know, national lampoons vacation or like Wildcats, And then I think he even did some ridiculous uh, like police Academy comedy thing or whatever, moving violations or something like that. Anyway. So it, both the Keeches were always around. So yeah, I, and, and actually Stacy Keach is still acting. He was, he is on the last season of a blacklist and he just has been chewing scenery the entire season and, Holding his own with James Spader, it's it's pretty awesome actually. So he's unlike most of this cast, unfortunately, who has passed away. Keach is still at it and doing stuff. So
2: oh, he's also in Nebraska too. I think Nebraska is pretty great.
3: Yeah, so. he
1: is. I, I mean, yeah, I I do like him when he shows up, and I I like it when he chooses Um yeah. I, I like his whenever he's a detective because again, that's the Mickey Splain stuff, right? Uh, he's just he's yeah. one that. I always forget about and but when you go back and look through his resume, there's so much to get through. And like you said, he's still acting. He's at 215 credits right now, according to IMDb. I mean, he's adding to that. He's got, I think he's got four projects in the works right now. So yeah, go, go Stacey Keach. Um, Scott <laughs> Wilson as Billy Cutshaw. Now he was the one that was nominated for best supporting actor as a golden globe from this film. I think most people will know him now as Herschel green from the walking dead television series. He also is in another Blady project. The exorcist three from 1990, Mm -hmm. we get Jason Miller as Lieutenant Frankie Reno. I think most people will know him as father Karras from the exorcist or patient X from exorcist three. I got to give a shout out to the gentleman's guide to midnight cinema because they talked about a film recently, the nickel ride from 1974, never heard Ah. about it. And, um, after their discussion, because Jason Miller stars in that went out and found that. And it is a fantastic film. You need, if, if you like Jason Miller or if you just like seventies crime films, you need to go watch that and go listen to the gentleman's guide to midnight cinema's episode on the nickel ride. Uh, I, I mean, that's a push for that podcast. That, that podcast drives me crazy because every time I listen, if I not ha- haven't seen the film, I end up going to buy it or watching it. So anytime they. Is,
3: uh his uh, spawn, his sons are notable actors as well. Um, Joshua Miller, um, you know, probably don't name probably doesn't pop off, but he actually wrote The Final Girls, which is a movie that oh, came okay. out um, in, yeah. in 2015. Um, and then he is Homer in Near Dark, the vampire, the the young boy. Oh, that's right, so, yeah. So that's Joshua Miller. And then his other son, we all know, Jason Patrick, The Lost Boys, Speed. Yep. And they're both really, really intense actors. So go dad.
1: Yeah. <laughs> we get Ed Flanders as Colonel Richard Fell, who also is in The Exorcist Jason
2: Patrick of Solar Babies fame. Of Speed two. 2. Speed 2, beast.
1: Brad. It's
2: floppy hair. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh see Ed Flanders also is an Extras 3. There's there's a lot of people that was in Extras 3 that is in this film as well. We get Neville Brand as Major Marvin Groper. His filmography goes back to 1949. I think it's interesting he starred in the original DOA from 1949, which we talked about when we reviewed mm-hmm, yeah. Dead Heat. I mean, this guy's been in some classics, even like Stalag 17 from 1953.
3: Oh, my God. Yeah. He's got quite the resume, actually.
1: Yeah, he does. Um, George DeCenzo as Captain Fairbanks. Moses Gunn as Major at Namek. Robert Loggia as Lieutenant Benish, which he's almost unrecognizable until he starts talking. You're like, oh, that's Robert Loggia. Uh, Joe Spinell shows up as Lieutenant Spinell, and this was just... I, I, <laughs> I mean, if you think about what he was doing around this time frame, 76 Taxi Driver, 76 Rocky uh, does Maniac in 1980 when this comes out. Yeah. And then also shows up in The Godfather and The Godfather Part 2. I mean. yeah, hey, Willie. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, a face. Oh, that, yeah.
2: oh, yeah. By the way, he's also in maybe two of the greatest films of all time.
1: Yes. Um, <laughs> th- this shocked me when I saw him. Tom Atkins as Sergeant Krebs. So we, yes. we talked about Tom Atkins way back on episode 73, when we reviewed Halloween three season of the witch. And then the other surprise that comes at the end of the film is none other than Richard Lynch as the, the second motorcyclist. Right. Yep. Uh, and if you've, if you've seen the sword and the sorcerer from 1982, you'll know him cause he's King Titus Cromwell. I mean, he just has that. I mean, he was a Chuck Norris villain, I think in invasion USA too. Right. Is that right? Did I get that right? Right i movie? believe so okay and i've i've been
3: waiting for you guys to put bad dreams on the list oh, yes. because
1: he's fantastic in
3: it oh, that's and that's like a yeah. nightmare on elm street that's knockoff a great, right yeah, a little bit it has more more akin with uh pho- the movie phobia than it does uh nightmare on elm street but uh it's an int- it's an interesting thriller from andrew fleming who's openly
1: openly gay as well yeah we, you, we you we guys do should do that, that. i remember seeing that in the theater it was it was a weird watch yeah Let's talk about production and development. We, we did um, talk about the budget and, and Blady kind of funding this himself. Uh, Blady developed the ninth configuration into a screenplay for Columbia Pictures. Apparently, he did not want to work with Warner Brothers because he ended up suing the studio over his proper share of profits from The Exorcist. Columbia then placed the screenplay in turnaround. Blady took the script to Universal Pictures. Universal rejected it. And according to Blady... It was not because of any consideration of quality, but simply because Columbia had let it go. There was nobody prepared to take a chance on their own judgment. That's his quote. Now, this is super interesting. This is Tom Atkins talking about the film. So Tom Atkins, he says uh, in in a 2009 interview, I have always believed that a movie about the making of that film would have been much better than the actual movie turned out to be. It was kind of a zoo from the very beginning. William Peter Blady wrote and directed it and financed part of it by selling a home that he had in Malibu. His idea of getting a good ensemble effort from his actors was to take people over to Budapest for two months. The part I had might have taken two weeks in the States, but he he had us all over there for two months. All he ended up getting was 22 really upset, angry, and drunk actors who had a lot of trouble showing up for work. I thought that the script was wonderful, but I don't think that Blady ever got what he wanted up on the screen. I think a lot of us took the job because we would be able to go to Prague and Moscow and bounce around Europe when we weren't working. He decided that he would put up the call sheet for the next day at midnight so that you couldn't go anywhere. (laughs) Wow. These are the tactics, y'all on set. (laughs) Yeah. So I, I don't, I don't think Tom Atkins had a very good experience doing that and we, we already talked about the distribution rights um, and how they kind of bounce back and forth. I think what's funny is he ends up suing Warner Brothers doesn't want to work with them, But then Warner Brothers ends up picking it up because everybody rejected it doesn't it the test markets may let it go. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's it, it sounds on some accounts that you read about it. The production was a little troubled. Um, and Blady had some had some problems during the filming so uh i i think it would make a very interesting documentary if that if there was even footage back then because the interviews i see of Blady he, he really talks very fondly of this film because it's his baby right i mean even yeah. even when the credits start at the beginning of the film you don't get a traditional credits you get the actors and you get written and directed by william peter Blady and then you go right into the film right right so i i'm really excited to talk about this film with you guys so We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to get all, I don't know what the word for it is. I don't know what kind of conversation this is going to be. Um, I I hope I'm not hyping it up too much, but I don't know where this thing's going to go. So stick around and uh, we'll be back.
0: Time for refreshment refreshment for your enjoyment. There's hot, fresh popcorn, tempting, delicious hot dogs. And so many kinds of ice cream. And of course, sparkling, delicious, ice-cold Coca-Cola. For everybody at the refreshment counter now. Remember, your favorite snack will taste especially good with world-famous ice-cold Coca-Cola.
2: You walk into a movie theater. You find a seat and make yourself comfortable. Maybe you eat some popcorn or a candy bar. The lights dim... The movie begins, and within 60 seconds, you are pinned to your seat. Two hours
0: later, the movie lets go of you. You walk out, a little stunned from all the excitement, but with a sense that you have never been so entertained in all your life. You can't wait to tell your friends about the experience. You have just seen The Exorcist. William Peter
1: Blatty's The Exorcist. Directed by William Friedkin from Warner Bros. Rated R under 17, not admitted without parent.
2: The Exorcist. This year's entertainment powerhouse.
1: Let's get into this thing. Jose, I'm going to start with you. you you've you been texting us all week over your excitement on this film. So I, I, f- I figure we got to turn it over to you first uh, so that you know this excitement, it can just get out there. So hit us with your thoughts on this one.
3: So I came across the ninth configuration, obviously, because you know I had read about the fact that Blady called it Well, it's been referred to either as a spiritual cousin to The Exorcist or Blady calls it a direct Mm. sequel to The Exorcist. So I'm like, oh, direct sequel to The Exorcist. Ah, let's watch it. And of course, there's no possessions. There's nothing quite like that. And I remember watching it the first time and being like, is Blady on crack? Maybe I need to read the book. So then I read the book and then I was kind of like, "Mm, how is this a sequel? And the more I watched it, first of all, this is the movie I thought I was gonna get when I watched One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest for the first time. Right. Um, which, you know, obviously if you think about people in like an insane asylum or what have you, this again, this is what I was expecting to see when I saw One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Obviously, completely different. And I actually ended up acting in the um in the play of it, actually. Um uh, One but, Flew over the Cuckoo's Nest? Of one flew over the okay. cuckoo's nest, yeah. Yep. Um, but I, first of all, one of the things that I love about this movie is that it's it's really a showcase for all of these actors, and they are just fantastic in it. I mean, some of the some of the stuff that they do, I mean, i I, th- I think looking at it from an actor standpoint, I, I would have loved to have been on this set. Um, apparently, Spinelli, his character. Uh, you know was not in the book and all of his lines are ad-libbed but just i don't know i i i would love to hear about the making of this because again there are just some really really great performances and they go from completely out there to absolutely super serious the stuff that like is doing that flanders is doing um i knew flanders from St. elsewhere um but he is such a I think he's such a great underrated actor. Apparently, he spent a lot of his life in depression, which is sort of sad. But um, he brings this kind of a gravitas as well. And Scott Wilson just absolutely blew me away. Um, but this movie is definitely very, very deep. And I think that it takes several viewings to get something out of it because it is... It starts off almost like a comedy, and then, as you had said, it said Troy, it becomes kind of like a, almost like a religious or a psychological thriller, and it it, it definitely is very very heavy, and as a sequel to the exorcist i think where he's going as you noted this is a sort of like a faith trilogy but i'm going to read this quote um that he he gave from i think i got it off of imdb but the quote is if the universe is clockwork and man is no more than molecular structures how is it there is love as a god would love and that a man like jesuit damian karis would deliberately give up his life for a stranger, the alien corpus of Reagan McNeil. This is surely an enigma far more puzzling and far more worth pondering than the scandalous problem of evil. This is the mystery of goodness. It is the point all critics miss. And so I think that that's what he was talking about with The Exorcist, and that's what he explores here, which is... Ostensibly, it feels like the movie is about, because a lot of the characters are searching for meaning, or they're kind of railing against the prevailing authority. And so the the movie follows this sort of like weird experimental center where they're sending uh, military uh, combatants, or they're slated to go into combat um, in the Vietnam War, and they have started uh, exhibiting psychosis or going crazy. And so they have put them in these centers to figure out: Well, are they maling- malingering or faking it because they're scared, or is war bringing out something in these soldiers um, that that was sort of unforeseen, right? And then the sort of twist of the screenplay um, is that the Stacey Keach character, who seems like he's arriving there, and it's actually all right there. If you if you watch it again, it you can tell right from the beginning yeah we
1: we should probably that, we should probably say right oh, now
3: are we going to are we going to wait for a spoiler thing
1: no i we're just going to spoil the crap out of it um so okay. if if you brad was like oh my god you can't say this i mean if you go to wikipedia okay. imdb anything about it you're you're going to you're going to see and and even in the beginning they just say oh this is colonel kane he's a psychiatrist etc there is a right. huge reveal there's a bunch of huge reveals in the third act I- I don't think of them. this is one of those um, films and, and I'll, I'll, I'll let you guys agree or disagree. I don't think you can talk about this film spoiler free. Yeah. I don't think you can either. I, I think this is one of those, like if you're interested in actually viewing it and you want to be surprised or shocked by the twists, stop, go watch it. Maybe come back. If, yeah, if that kind of idea. thing doesn't bother you, <laughs> we're going to spoil the shit out of this thing. So yeah. uh, unless Brad, you, you disagree or
2: Oh no. I and honestly I don't know if I think if knowing that going into it might actually help. Okay. All right. Go ahead.
1: Yeah. Jose. I just it I just actually... want to put that out for people who care about spoiler. I mean, we don't we this thing's been around since nineteen eighty. You had a chance to watch it, folks. Yes. So. <laughs> You've had decades, people. Yeah. Um and so the the reveal of
3: the screenplay is that Stacy Keach is actually the patient and that he is Re- that he is in fact the brother of of the Ed Flanders character. but but what comes out is that he had been in war and done some horrible things, whether they were of his own volition or they were the product of the stress of being in combat. and it 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 fractured his personality. Um, and so you know, him and then the Scott Wilson character, who is this astronaut who apparently aborted, um uh the launch of his rocket ship to go to the moon um and, and they don't really go into it the book goes into it a little uh, bit more
2: apparently during melancholia cuz that moon is awfully close yes, <laughs> yes
3: exactly
0: true true
2: um, he um but he sort of
3: is like you see him being dragged away from the rocket saying there's nothing up there there's nothing up there um and so after these reveals it, it you know the movie really sort of like shows That it's about examining, like, is there a God? But even if there isn't a God, you know, how do you explain acts of good or acts of self-sacrifice, right? And, you know, I think there's a line in there that says something like, you see evil as the absence of God, but I see good things as, like, the presence of God or the result of God. Um, And so... I my take on the film is that you know it isn't really about you know is there a god I mean that's certainly what Scott Wilson is going through but I think what it really is about is that good and evil god and the devil sort of exist in all of us and you know as human beings you know I think there's maybe a slant towards being selfish and then maybe doing things that aren't so great for your own reasons, right? But then there are the times when people are doing good, and they're doing self-sacrifice, and maybe that's God. Maybe that's the good benevolent power that the more we do this, the more the world gets better, right? Flanders has a quote, before he steps into a car and a very weird flashback because it just flashes back to him, like walking in front of the white house and then getting into a car. And I'm like, why, why are we seeing this now? But Flanders says something like
1: all good thoughts are the hope of the world. And I, I don't think, think that's a flashback. He leaves the is it a flashback. No, he leaves the place for a while because, yeah. Oh yeah. It,
3: but it looked like he was, it looked like he wasn't at the castle. It looked like he was back.
1: He was, he was, he was, he left, but the the castle is okay. in in the U.S. It's just in a remote remote part of the U.S. Right, because Pacific when, Northwest. yeah when the he asylum. comes asylum the asylum yeah when he yeah. comes right. when asylum. he comes back he makes an excuse that he had a thing with his uncle.
3: Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah, got it. Um, but yeah, there's there's a lot going on here, and there's it definitely provokes a lot of like thought. <laughs> so. And the, and the other crazy characters, it's interesting. If you look at each one of their sort of like delusions, it's either that they're pretending to be somebody else because they don't like who they are, but it's also interesting to look at who they pretend to be. So Moses Gunn's character wants to be Superman, which is like the pinnacle of like Americana and helping people. Um, Robert Loja is just like, give me back my flying belt. And then <laughs> Jason Miller is a playwright. And he's trying to sort of do the impossible, which is redo Hamlet with dogs, but it's because he can control that, right? Versus having the military control them. And then then there is a there's sort of like parallel storytelling of like this white nationalist biker gang that they run afoul of, which in some ways is a parallel to what the government was doing with people in Vietnam, or or drafting them and forcing them to go into a violent situation. Uh, and war and combat and possibly bringing out really terrible things that that the men could no longer reconcile, right? And so it actually presages, you know, PTSD for military, um, and it's it, it's actually pretty relevant, even though it looks dated, it looks older. There are issues in all of this that we're dealing with now, just mental health, etc. Um, and what's really curious too is that there is a book. Um, and I promise I'll stop yakking. No, after this is this. good um, stuff, man. There's actually a book called The Myth of Normal, which I'm which I'm reading. It's uh, written by Gabor Matei. Uh, he's a psychologist. And um, I'm just gonna read the summary because I, I'm probably I would probably misstate it if I did it, but but the idea of this book is that psychosis or anxiety, depression, these mental health things that we're going through, they are not just brain chemistry deficiencies in people. They are the results of societal pressures and our upbringing. So I'm just, I'm just going to quickly read this summary. It says born into an environment that centers, centers around the needs of society rather than parents and children, many of us experience small and large traumas of all kind. To cope We split from these painful emotions, rejecting parts of ourselves and turning away from loving connection. The source of mental illness, addiction, and disease often traces back to these inner wounds and the stress they lock into our body. Despite many societal advances, disease and mental illness are on the rise, but the medical system rarely considers the whole life of a patient or their inner emotional world. Instead, they isolate the biology of the disease from its social context trying to cure illness so we can get back to normal. But what is normal? It may just be the very thing that is making us sick in the first place. And that's basically this movie in a nutshell, right? They're they're thinking that they're going crazy just because there's something wrong with them, or maybe they fear going into war. But it's the product of the changes in society, the drafting, the war culture, the counterculture, that maybe cause some of this to come out. So again, very relevant. There's a lot to get out of this. I think this is a, a an amazing film and it deserves not just cult status, but to be seen by, uh, a wider audience because it's, it just touches upon so much that we all go through on small levels. Even if you don't see it the first time you watch it and
1: I'm going to shut up now. <laughs> I, I think in the text thread, uh, you, you all hit us with the word masterpiece. Is yes. that where you still land on this thing?
3: I still land on that. I think that, you know, it's weird to hear Tom Atkins say that he was, you know, that it was like, oh, the movie wasn't that great. I I love it. I think it's, I think it's fascinating. And like any other movie, as you said, Troy, we bring our own sort of like uh, a prism to look through and give our own interpretation. Um, I mean, this is like a, it's like a Rorschach test for people, you
1: know? Okay. I like it. I like the take. All right, yeah. Brad. I'm I'm super curious where where you're going to land on this thing. This, this is one of those films we run across. <laughs> I'll be the first to tell you like I wouldn't I wouldn't put money on on betting what your thoughts are cuz who knows. Um this is I will say this is very pretentious and uh this type of filmmaking is right up your alley, I I think in some cases.
2: Yeah, so it it would be a uh... I think we we talk about films that are like instantly rewatchable and just you can turn it on at any point in time and it, it's just a watchable film. I think this one is one of those films that challenges you the whole entire way and is not something I would recommend to everybody because it is it is a dense text of a film. It's got so much stuff going on, but again, it. it kind of doesn't as well like unless you're really kind of invested in the characters and what they're going through i think you could really find this thing to be extremely difficult um i was constantly waiting for the reveal of what was going on because you knew that there was something with kane um Cause at first they were calling him Hudson for a little bit. And then they were like, no, it's, it's Kane. Um, and I had to s- kind of get myself out of that mindset, like stop waiting for the twist, stop waiting for the reveal and watch the movie because I ended up kind of missing some stuff. Um, and again, they're, they're kind of giving you hints, right? They're, they're, t- they're talking about Hamlet and about whether or not, uh, Hamlet was going crazy or if he was faking it. And, there's all these, they're, they're kind of giving you um, the message of what's going on. And then I started thinking about Shutter Island and I was like, stop thinking about Shutter Island and <laughs> stop thinking about one Flew of the cuckoo's nest, like watch this movie. But again, it, it my, I think my one complaint with Blatty is he's an author first and a play in a screenwriter second. Like you can tell this guy wrote books. I think that's my biggest problem with the exorcist three is it feels like a book and not a movie. Um, This I think actually really helps the fact that it's more like a book. Um, There's just so many characters and they're in and out and you're only getting bits and pieces of them. Um, And then of course we're we're talking about mental health. And then I was thinking, well, this is the second in his sort of faith trilogy. And the first one being the Exorcist, we're we're like, well, how does these connect? And, and to me, it's it's exorcism doesn't exist. Like I don't believe in exorcism, um, you, but a lot of people feel like it's.
1: Do you hold on? You you don't believe in it. you don't believe in possession? Or? I don't believe in
2: possession. Okay, no,
1: Got I it.
2: all right. I, I, like, and and this is why like, my problem with like that Pope. At, Pope's exorcist uh, movie (laughs) is like a lot of it can just be chalked up to mental health issues and people going and having mental uh, breakdowns and things like that and feeling like there's something inside of them and then calling it Satan or the devil or whatever. And so um, and not getting treatment for that, but getting having an exorcist performed, which doesn't treat the mental illness. Then here we're like basically coming out and talking about going insane and the, and the the thin line between insanity and, and being sane, it, it's just a, I, I found this movie to be one of the most challenging films that we've done. And I, I felt like at the end of it, I caught maybe 25% of it. And I'm not ready to go back through and, and watch it again because it is sort of like dense. Um, but, when I do, I feel like I'm going to understand it more and more and I, and I think this one will will definitely um appreciate upon further uh viewings. It's just it's just a lot and I was trying to dig my teeth into so many things, but I was thinking so much about what does this mean and what does that mean I was kind of missing the actual film. And we get to the end of it and I'm like, oh, of course, like the guy kills himself to sacrifice to save the one guy because they talked about, you know, um, essentially like falling on a grenade. And he was like, well, no, that's just a, it's just a reaction. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I think to me, this one would be a hard one to recommend just to your average movie person. But I mean, I think if you're, if you're listening to podcasts, you're probably not an average movie person. But it it is it is going to take a lot to kind of chew through um, and you're going to have to put on your thinking cap because they're you're going to have to like watch the performances and and listen to what they're saying. And because there's not there's like an action scene at a bar and that's basically all the action you get. The, uh, The rest of it is just guys talking and the scenes. There are scenes that go on for a really long time there's shots to just linger. And I really like when directors kind of let their movie breathe and just let things be, Um, you know, Blatty would kind of do this again in the exorcist three. And I think he did it way better here. I think this film looks amazing. I think the setting is amazing. Um,
1: He does. He does have a, his films feel like a stage play. In, They're in very a stage of, play.
2: They're very yeah. theater, very, uh, I mean, this could literally be a stage play. Um, yeah, but yeah, I, I, you know, again, this is, this is a challenging film. And if you feel like that is something that you're ready for, um, and you're ready for those mental gymnastics, I think it, uh, I think it's worth seeing. I think it's worth sitting through it and, and just kind of letting the film go and then thinking about it and digesting it afterwards unlike me who I'm trying to take notes, I'm trying to say, what does this mean? What does that mean? And then I'm missing large swaths of the film and having to go back. Um, that really wasn't the ideal way of, of watching. I should have probably watched it twice. I just didn't have time, but I enjoyed it. Um, knowing that uh, there's
1: knowing that there's a, the source material is the book that sits out there. mm -hmm. Does this viewing make you want to go uh, read the book?
2: Um, I would listen to the book. Yeah. Uh, Oh, okay. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah. Um, it it does. It does. Cause I, I, I am someone who is fascinated by mental health topics and people struggling with mental health. And I have I've always kind of felt a little ashamed of myself because people are like, well, you I'm anxious. I can't shut my brain off. I can't do this. I can't do that. And I like never really struggled with that. And I, I have always kind of felt a little, um, I don't know. When you don't have any sort of, <laughs> I would say the lack of issue is my issue, really. Um, but I, I, I'm always sort of interested in in learning about those things. Um, so yeah, I think so because I'm I'm really, get, I'm not going to like jump back into this thing tomorrow. But when I am, I'm I'm definitely going to like jump into it whole hog and and go for it and really sink my teeth into it once again so the book will probably give me some pretty good background um so yeah yeah i think uh i think people should definitely check this out because it's one of the ones that's like it it's really rewarding too okay i know we don't have a whole lot i mean you're not getting this from marvel and all that stuff like this is a challenging rewarding film yeah i mean it it, it comes
1: out in 1980 you shouldn't be ashamed (laughs) Well, no, no, I mean, I <laughs> it, it comes out in 1980 uh, and it, even, even though the year says 80, it, fill, it still feels very much a 70s film. I mean, that's fair I mean, to say, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And
3: I also wanted to just stress that, you know, Blatty is an author, but I think especially in this film, he knows how to make a visual literate film, if that makes any sense. So you will see... Sort of themes of you know these sort of like close shots, much like QT of um, of like these gargoyles and these things, and they are interposed with um, just sort of like uh, contrasting them with what what the demons are inside of the of the actors and the characters. Um, plus, there's a theme about like rain. Why is it always raining? Mm-hmm. And then you kind of get that as well. And and lit- quite literally when. Keach's character has a breakthrough that um, Wilson's character breaks through that, uh, through that glass in the office. And then they shoot the rest of some of the scenes through that glass mm. because Stacey Keach has had his breakthrough. So he's doing some very wonderful visual things here that aren't obvious with the first watch. Um, so I, I think you are warning to viewers about how you have to watch it in a certain way. And it might even take a couple viewings is uh, pretty apt.
1: I I think that's fair. I'll I'll be honest. Uh, Given the week in Memorial Day holiday, this is one of those films I I did not want to sit down and be rushed. I'd seen it before and I remembered it. And knowing that we were going to talk about it and and knowing having to bring my A-game with you two, it was I I needed some quiet time. I needed to make sure it was uninterrupted to watch this thing. And it was also one of those that I did not want to take any notes while I'm watching it, but I knew as soon as it was over, whatever my gut reaction was, that's what I had to get down. Um, And, and I wrote a lot on this thing to be quite honest. Um, So uh, uh, anything else you want to throw out there, Brad or Jose? I mean, on this thing. Mm -mm. Okay. Nope. (laughs) I'm going to be totally honest. I struggle with this one. Uh, I don't know. If I like it, or even if it's a good movie. I will say the concept and the basic story is extremely fascinating. The subject and the the premise spot on. It it just it it really gets my whole brain just firing on all the synapses, right? But there are two things about this film that really keep me from getting into it. The first one is actors acting out mental illness in a Hollywood style. So it's this Hollywood version of mental illness where everybody has a quirky side and it's funny to be in a psychiatric hospital. And I know there's this throwaway subplot that is hinted every once in a while about this question of whether or not they're really faking it or if they're really going through something. But either way, all of these performances are cliche and annoying. There is no authenticity to any of it. Um, well, I
2: think the characteristics of the characters are, oh,
1: okay. None of it. Because if, okay. you, if you actually go back through that whole list and go, hey, um, tell me something about uh, Scott Wilson, Jason Miller, Ed Flanders, all these things, you will go back and you will talk about their quirkiness and their characters. And the guy doesn't want to go to the moon because he doesn't think there's a God or something of that nature. I don't think you get
2: Or the guy that just randomly does blackface. Yeah, Robert Loggia
1: does blackface and then <laughs> yes. complains that you know he needs his rocket for Venus or something. There's no character development here whatsoever outside of the Stacy Keach character, and I know he's the primary one, but Stacy Keach is surrounded by cliche Hollywood. Being insane is funny. Um, Jason Miller almost wins me over because I do like that Shakespeare Hamlet analogy about Hamlet trying to basically fake being crazy in order to prevent himself from being crazy. And and here's Jason Miller's caliber is even with a paper-thin characterization, he still manages to actually make a lot out of that character even though there's nothing to make out of it. Um and and at the end of the day you just go, "Well, Jason Miller's the guy that's trying to do Shakespeare plays with dogs." That's what you remember out right. of him. <laughs> yes. Um so that really for the first two acts gets in the way of, because it's just, here's a scene of quirkiness and mental health person being funny. Um, And here's, here's the other part interspersed with all of that is the pretentious monologuing. And it absolutely gets on my nerves. Um, I think Blady, when he farts, he thinks he's making art. Um, (laughs) That, that is, that is always my impression of this film and especially his take on this film. This guy bludgeons, I mean bludgeons the viewer over the head with pretentious philosophical statements that lack zero, and I mean zero subtlety. It gave me a headache. Uh, And these actors are delivering these lines with such gravitas, it almost comes off as a rendition of Bad Shakespeare in the Park. In the pretentious imagery and I mean pretentious imagery. You get an astronaut on the moon looking at Jesus being crucified. Could you just assault my eyeballs anymore with your? <laughs> hey, I'm I'm trying to make a point here about science and PTSD and craziness and illness and the ninth configuration and DNA and you know trying to find the goodness and everything else. And the <laughs> the first two acts of this film are basically. Look at how funny these crazy people are mixed with, look at how we are asking these very important universal questions about whether God exists or what is goodness, right? So it's a whiplash of pretentious horseshit back and forth, 100%. I knew I was in trouble because I, I remember how this film starts with the Denny Brooks song, San Antone, even before you get to the oh. credits. And it's just him just looking out the window, watching rain and stuff like that. And you get <laughs> You get this pretentious art folk song, right? Um, and then when you get to the credits, you just get, well, here are the actors, and it's written by William Peter Blatty and directed by him. I'm like, okay. But but let me tell you the scene that broke me. <laughs> because as soon as the movie is over, it's like, I knew. I knew this exact scene where I go, this sums up why I have a problem with this film. It's Jason Miller, Stacey Keach holding a Nazi uniform, and Moses Gunn dressed up as Superman, standing outside of Jason Miller's casting room, and a guy flies by on a rocket. Then you hear this crashing sound and you see all these people dressed up as orderlies or whatnot with a gurney running by to help out. And then they run by, this is supposed to be the big comedic, like, Oh my God, isn't this so weird? And after they're having this pretentiousness go on, then you get this crazy like chaos and it's supposed to produce this laugh and just like, what the heck moment, but it just gives you a headache. Um, And then you get into the third act, which I think feels like an interesting movie, but it's got some problems, too, in that third act. And let's talk about this big twist. Kane is actually a homicidal Marine who thinks he's a psychiatrist because the computer made a mistake. So they give him orders accidentally the medical doctor of this facility is actually the psychiatrist, but is also his brother and the government screwed up the orders. But the doctor who's the real psychiatrist is using this as an opportunity to cure his brother. That's, Mm -hmm. that's a super interesting take like that, that premise and that plots really good. Um, You find that out, but then your immediate reaction is what the fuck was the first two acts? Then it was just comedic, Psycho babble and then pretentious monologuing, but this was your premise, and it 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 just feels like it comes out of left field. Although it's there, it I just don't think Blady did a great job as a director of bringing that to the fruition of the first two acts. wasn't well, twi- the
2: first two? I mean i I think the first two acts is just kind of the like sow the seeds of the relationship between Cut, Cutshaw and Kane.
1: I don't know. I, I mean, I, well, thi- I think, I think, I think walks in and does his silliness, uh, sits on a bag of Fritos. Right. And then, oh, that's, that's <laughs> supposed to be kind of funny. And then, oh, here's a monologue of pretentiousness and, oh, he sits on the Fritos again. Well, here's some more pretentious monologue. And then here's your Rorschach test. And, you know, I see a Buffalo or, or don't you mean bison? And it's, it's like, okay, come on, really? But go ahead, Jose.
3: Well, I was, I was going to say that, um, The Hudson, the actual Hudson psychiatrist character sort of spells it out that he was uh, that essentially because of his experience in Vietnam, he had sort of like splintered his personality to protect himself and became the good part. And he, the psychiatrist brother was trying to get him to help the other crazy soldiers in an act of redemption that's, um, and he does but explain that's not the
1: intent. That. It's <laughs> the government made a mistake and then he becomes a psychiatrist and they use this as an opera. His brother uses as an opportunity to cure him, but also do it as a social experiment. So it's all of a sudden that this twist is wrapped up and there's a lot there. But when you think about the first two acts of the film, you're like, okay, there's elements of there. I, I, I get it, etc. But the twist feels like a twist. It doesn't feel organic. I I would use Shutter Island as a great example. (laughs) Shutter Island's twist, when it hits you, it feels organic. This twist feels like it came out of nowhere. Now, are the plot beats there to support this twist? Absolutely. But because of the filmmaking that happens in the first two acts, when the twist occurs, it's like, okay, I, I see it, but now I mean what what do you make of that? Is it an aha moment or you're like, "Okay, so what like that's my reaction to that twist is like, well, so what what okay, big deal, right? <laughs> then you get to the seventies bar scene, which <laughs> let's let's talk about this for a second. What the fuck <laughs> I mean, yeah, this thing it, comes it out of it. definitely
2: one of those moments where it that 15 minutes just does not fit. But then you're thinking like the whole talk about falling on a grenade for somebody. And that's like their, like the reaction. That's how I kind of took it. Like he was falling on a grenade. For Is it, it because Sean? those
1: two things don't, um, he, he murders like 15 people in a bar. He, he murders them. And don't get me wrong in terms of take that 15 minutes out or whatever from a bar scene and go, Hey, evaluate this on its own. It is one of the most shocking things you'll see in like late seventies, early eighties cinema. And you're like, wow, that's, that's crazy. Uh, and I think I mean, it he could he
2: couldn't let a guy with guy liner beat him up to it. That's the whole thing. <laughs> I know.
1: I mean, you got these bikers with ascots. It's, it's so goofy, I mean, <laughs> but at the same time, it's man, it really, it gives this film a jolt that was much needed, uh, but it really stands out in the context of this film, in my opinion.
3: Well, I mean, they were talking about, you know, evil and the selfishness of man and this biker gang, biker culture, whatever they are. They're also white supremacists, by the way. Um, yeah. It, uh, they also you know, might be gay. Like, uh, maybe. Yeah. Um, I think that they
1: well, there's a there's a scene in there when he holds the guys down. I mean, and just unzip I mean, okay. I know Richard Lynch was going to make him. Yeah, yeah. But um, He's but about like that in prison. Yeah, <laughs>
3: that was that scene was supposed to be about the evil of man, because you know when he when Stacy Keach shows up, Wilson says to him, "Here's your goodness of man, right? Yeah. And there's there's no turning them away from their selfish violence and and need to sort of like insult both a celebrity astronaut and then the person who comes to protect him and no matter what they did because they were trying to placate them i mean he was he was doing everything that he wanted to do and it only made them like matter but like i said i think that because they make a point to show you the the white supremacist the eagle thing and then later in the movie you see more of the military stripes and the camera kind of shows off the 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 hawk of the military yep. uniform the eagle or whatever and so they're they're kind of drawing this parallel about you know these these forces that either are going to make you go nuts and murder people or try to take the high road like mr you know like scott wilson's character but
1: Yeah, I mean, I get it, but it's, if it's demonstrating the evilness of men and this is supposed to be his moment where he shows goodness, how is murdering all these people? So if you're, if you're in this philosophical debate with somebody that just says, and I'll, I'll, I'll use the argument that they bring up of there's a hand grenade and somebody sacrifices themselves in order to save everybody else. Yes, that is a selfless act that saved lives. How does this biker scene equate to that example? It doesn't it's here's all these bad people but in order to combat all of this evilness, you have to do something just as evil and murder him.
3: That makes well, no sense th- to me. Th- well, but I don't think but I don't think the point of it is that that's what you're supposed to do, which is why they bathe him in all the red sort of like garish light. Um, I think it's meant to provoke in the viewer that, this is what we've been doing for so long, which is treating evil or fighting evil with evil. And there needs to be something more than that. What that is, the movie doesn't give you the answer.
1: Oh, it tries. So after yeah. this, you now get into this little exchange where it says, well, why didn't you want to go to the moon? Well, the reason why I wouldn't you know, go to the moon, you finally find out. Scott Wilson says he didn't want to go to the moon because he didn't want to be alone and God might not exist. And so he'd really be alone, and so it was just fear, right? And the next thing you know, is Stacy Keach, after murdering a dozen people in the bar, decides to prove God exists by killing himself. He commits, quote, a selfless act because killing yourself is somehow selfless, um, and so he he gives his life like Jesus, because there, there's even a reference. You know, Scott Wilson kind of makes that analogy a little bit um well he's carrying him out and he has the yeah and, and he's goodness. like
0: oh look
1: uh yeah. Yeah, the spear wound yeah, yeah so um but but he kills himself so that he could eventually deliver a necklace from the afterlife to prove that there is an afterlife and a god that's how the movie ends
3: well he was giving the example
1: what the example? One example what where does suicide he where saved, does kill, sa- he what did he say did he? He saved Scott Wilson. How did he save Scott Wilson? He, he was by killing leave. all the people in the bar. <laughs> it makes no fucking sense. And then himself because right. he was
2: at Scott Wilson. We see him leave. He's back at NASA because the car. Why NASA? Why I I don't know. I don't know. There, there's, there's, in there's the also, beginning, but I also I
3: also think there's an ambiguous thing as to whether because we don't see the full fight right. Like the the guyliner guy, the main guy, goes out the window but we don't really see the full fight. So we don't know if he's actually killed himself or if he's been stabbed and he just hit it from. He's uh, holding,
1: his hands are bloody and he drops a knife. He killed himself. Now there's
3: blanket around him.
1: There's other versions of the film that have a voiceover, I guess that says he was, he didn't survive the wounds from the bar fight or something. But you can't tell me the way that they filmed that scene out that it's the whole idea of it. He's like, well, I'm going to prove to you you know, that somebody somebody can do something so good and it's a selfless act. How does committing suicide translate to that? Like, I would, I would love somebody who's close to this film and loves it to take me through that third act and go, in the beginning, he comes to some conclusion where he's writing on a notepad and says shock treatment because shock treatment comes out, right? Mm-hmm. And so theoretically, what's supposed to happen is he's going to shock them into uh, being sane now, right? Or cure them from some type of shock. So you could draw the parallel and say that, hey, committing suicide after murdering twelve people is such a shock that now Scott Wilson's is like, oh, I'm better now, I'm good, I'm go back to NASA and I can fly to the moon. Um, but it it you you set your movie up with all of these questions, and you try and go down this path of what is the ninth configuration? You know, your DNA and and all these atoms and everything are smashing up against each other, but yet why do people act selfishly? Because if Adams were doing what they were supposed to be doing, then there would never be an act of selfishness, right? So there has to be something else out there. And I think those are very interesting questions, but thematically from a film perspective in your third act, you, you try to resolve that by just saying, yes, there's evil. I'm going to commit evil. And then I'm going to commit suicide to come back from the afterlife, to give you a necklace, to show that there's a God. It doesn't work for me.
3: And you know, it's it's Is it funny the suicide you part
2: that, it, that gets you like
1: It's the whole delivery it, of it. Like I said, the first two acts I have a problem with in terms of you you ping pong back and forth from a Hollywood stereotypical I mean, say what you will about one flew over the cuckoo's nest. I don't watch that film and go, Oh, I want to be in that hospital. To me, there's real uh, there's an authenticity to that film in terms of how they handled mental illness or, you know, nurse ratchet and all the other stuff. There's, it, it is not glamorized. Are there some quirky things in it? Yes. But there's just as many scary things about it with this. It feels very much like, Oh, mental illness is funny and look at all these quirks and you could say, well, they're all faking it. It's like, okay. Um, and, and really Stacy Keach. I'll, I'll give him this. Stacy Keach gives an amazing performance in this film. And I even like Jason Miller's performance. I really blame Blady on this in that he doesn't bring it together as a movie. Those first two acts just are mental illness being funny. And here's a bunch of monologues questioning the existence of a higher power. Your third act is supposed to bring that all together. And it doesn't make sense at all. In my opinion.
3: It's, It feels a lot like seventies filmmaking and that's what you're saying about the film is what I love about seventies filmmaking is that it's not all laid out like
1: that. No, but seventies filmmaking, while it can be transgressive and challenge you and make you think it doesn't. I'll tell you this, that whole, Hey, who, you know, Scott Wilson getting in the car and going, who left this necklace? And then you get this aha moment. It was Stacy Keats from the afterlife. I think it cheapens the film. Like if you're going to ask all of these major questions about this um, and you're going to have that as your ending scene, again, you're bludgeoning me with your theory. And, and this is where the exorcist this is where I think Freakin is a, a genius is he'll take Blady's concept and you look at that selfless act of, you know, the priest throwing himself out the window and saying, take me, etc., it's the act itself and it's everything that's playing out at the end of the exorcist. And, and it's how the exorcist is filmed that you go, wow, that is more about faith versus possession. And and that movie is more about a priest finding his faith. And you get that from the directing and the screenplay. This one feels like an incompetent director taking a very good screenplay and just massacring it.
2: I I, I think I disagree,
0: but well,
2: and and i i could be wrong but i I think what i have been told through religion all my life is that suicide is is a one-way ticket to hell essentially that's why uh you know assisted suicide was such a big thing was people wanted to die and needed to die they couldn't do it themselves because if they were to kill themselves they would not get to go to heaven um and so the fact that he gets to kill himself, maybe, I I guess, meet God, confirm that there is an existence of God, and then return a necklace at the end does feel a little, it's kind of, it's pushing at the other end of like, that's not what religious, what religion tells us.
1: Well, and philosophically, it makes no sense. It just makes no sense to me is like, how, how is that a selfless act? Him killing himself, what did it actually do for that character outside of shock him? It, it, it didn't prevent anything. I mean, he had already murdered all the people, so he saved him. What did killing himself actually add to it outside of shock him? And then what does that shock provide value in the context of all of the philosophical shenanigans that you were discussing in the first two parts of the film?
3: I mean, I saw it as I saw it as Kane's. Kane's sort of redemptive arc. Again, saving him and then atoning for his sort of like crazy acts and just just his... Saving Wilson one person and having him have his breakthrough, right? Wilson was able to finally admit to himself why he couldn't go up there, what he was really afraid of, and that was... I mean, that was how he helped Wilson. And then he was finally able to atone for his atrocities and the sort of craziness in Vietnam.
1: Or he, he actually, here's, here's a theory. He wimps out on it. I mean, if he was actually going to atone for all the things that he did, why didn't he just live and then get arrested by the police and actually pay the consequences for all those murders? Or, or did he take the cheap way out by ending his life? And he didn't have now, to face could argue any of that. that. Yeah. yeah. See, but and that, then he shouldn't be. Then, yeah. then
2: he shouldn't be able to go to heaven. And like, I, I know,
1: but that—that's that my also problem. Like a,
2: that's the fact that you're making me think about this. Like, he had all these war atrocities and this bar where he killed numerous people, and now he's like, "Oh yeah, but I got to meet God. I was a terrible person, but I believed in God, so therefore I got to meet him."
1: Yeah, i look. All all I'm saying is, if you're going to up the ante or her, her, if you're going to (laughs) up the ante in the first two acts and really tackle that subject matter, you cannot have this cheap ass ending. And to me, it's like you can say, okay, well, the intent of this was he was shocking Wilson with this act and he was showing that he's going to atone for all of this stuff. I'm like, yeah, but visually and from a storytelling perspective, I can also interpret it the other way. So the fact yep. that I can interpret it the other way means that that is a shoddy execution of an ending.
2: Well, I mean, hell's hell's filled with people with <laughs> good intentions. So
1: <laughs> True. it
2: well,
3: it's, it's an interpretation. You took one side. I took the other, I, I agree, but again,
1: yeah. um, as subtly, hmm.
2: I think Troy's trying to tell you that you're wrong, Jose. I,
1: I am. Uh, <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> all I got I'm it. saying <laughs> is, is I get this. And, and again, you, you could go back and say, well, Troy grew up Catholic. And to Brad's point, suicide's a bad thing. And it's like, yeah, you know, all life is precious. Um, that's, that's the Buddhist side of things. So ending your life in such a way, I don't understand. And again, it could be my personal beliefs, which is why I asked those questions at the beginning. It could be my personal beliefs that are getting the way of my, being able to see what the message is at the end of this film. But I would also contend that from a storytelling perspective as a film, it's messy and not messy in a good way.
2: But can you make a rel? Well, can you make a religious film that doesn't that people aren't bringing their own religious baggage to, to make a certain point? Like, I think it's impossible for people to look at something as dense as this and not bring their own, um, religious background to it. And I don't know, to kind of shy away from the tenets that we know of religion, not shy away, but basically turn your back on life is precious. Thou shall not kill sort of deal too. Um, yeah, I I see where you're coming from.
1: But I, I, I would say they did it successfully with The Exorcist in terms of Freakin was a better director. Uh, and, and, you know, I know Freakin and Blady had differing views on how some of the aspects of that film should have been completed. And, yeah. you know, Blady got to go make Exorcist 3. But The Exorcist 3, while extremely interesting and a good film, nowhere near the masterpiece that The Exorcist is. And, and oh, I, I hated The Exorcist 3. <laughs> Well, and, and to me, it's like, look, I, I think some of the things that you did here, you actually got right in The Exorcist 3 in, in some of the debate and things that you were doing um, to a certain degree. But this one, like I said, my biggest problem is the first two acts, I'm really struggling with those two issues that we talked about, right? The, the cliche yeah. Hollywood, crazy's funny, and then the bludgeoning of, of philosophy, and then when you get to that third act, it's like, you could have saved me on that third act if you had brought it all together and you actually made something that was impactful and powerful. Instead, I think you make some choices, some character choices here that don't make sense and don't resolve things. I don't think Stacy Keach's character has a good story ending or arc. And then you get this last sequence of the medallion and everything else i'm like really that's that's what you're ending on um and now it's like okay i i really i really don't i don't i really don't buy the messaging
3: i love the provocative nature of it i still i still stand by the fact that i think it's it's
1: kind of a mess it is i'll say this it's only provocative because somebody actually made a film that asked these questions but in terms of imagery and actual substance outside of just asking the questions, it's not very provocative. I it's, it's more cliched than provocative in my opinion. Your opinion, my opinion. (laughs) Yes. And I'm sure somebody's going to write in and tell me how much of an idiot I am. Hey, look, I would love somebody to take this film and walk me through it thematically from start to finish and actually point out how the third act is going to tie all this stuff together. And it cognitively makes sense given the questions that they ask at the beginning, because if you're saying that his suicide is the equivalent of another person throwing himself out on a grenade, et cetera, I would say that is bullshit because nobody, he didn't save anybody from this outside of provide a shock for a character. And if you're telling me that shock is what made him sane, uh, no, I, I don't think so.
3: I, I, mean, look. I think that we, you will come across films in the past and in the future that are going to raise questions and not necessarily answer them. And I think that's part
1: of the beauty of this one. Um, no, it answered a question. It just answered it poorly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, t- look, I'm being really harsh on this film only because it swung for the fences. It elevated itself in its subject matter for to say, hey, take this thing very seriously because we're asking some very heavy questions. It's like, I'm there. I, I love it when directors do this. But when you fumble it, in my opinion, then you you should be taking to task for that. So I know a lot of people love this, and it's got a cult-filled stat. And I've, I've read the great reviews on it, but I've also read the other reviews. Um, and And I don't disagree with the whole thing of, It's not that it's a bad film. It just comes off as an awful stage play at the end of the day.
2: I kind of like its balls.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's it's got them. It tries. I just, I don't, I don't know. I, again, I, Beatty's swinging for the fences. I love that. I love that aspect of it. Um, I
3: think it's super admirable.
1: Yeah. Well, you know what? It's got me wanting to go read the book now because I'm looking at this and going, okay, is this a question where... Beatty was more successful in delivering his thesis through print versus film. I'm going to go find out because I I, I want to read this book so badly now, but I can tell you from start to finish from that opening song all the way to the final shot of finding the necklace, it doesn't work for me at all. It, it Cohesively, it's a mess.
3: So I'm just going to tell you that, it's really more like a novella because it's not it's not very long and it spends a lot of its time um almost like a debate. In some ways the way Le- legion reads as well. Le- legion reads as a as almost like a, a seminar/philosophical slash debate. Yeah. Um uh with some thriller aspects. Uh but Ninth Configuration, I'm going to say the movie and the novel make good companions, but I don't know that you're going to get an answer from the novella.
1: Well, but again, I may enjoy that because if the debate is at least interesting and then I walk away with just saying, okay, these are questions I need to go find out myself. Great. Awesome. I mean, I I would have loved a film that had said, let's take this concept of the story because I, I think there's a really interesting concept and story here. And if I walked away with, oh, I have all these new questions about my faith and my religion, um, I, w- I would have loved that. And that film would have had a really positive impact on me. But the fact that it it asks all these questions and then delivers an answer to you, I'm not saying, hey, look, I'm not saying I disagree with him. There's a higher power. Don't get me wrong. What I am saying is I think your example or your part of the debate and the thesis that you're showing is malarkey. Wow. So that's my hot take on the ninth configuration. I was really The trying. rest is
3: silence.
1: Yeah. Sorry. But I mean, <laughs> I don't, I don't discredit your feelings or your interpretations on this. I, I'm, I'm glad you love it, Jose. It's got me wanting to watch, read the book. I'm glad Brad looks at this and says, "Hey, I want to dive back into it because I caught the 25%. I, hey, this is a good movie. Go check it out from from that aspect from the basis on YouTube." But I would also not be surprised if somebody watched this thing and, and walked away and just said, "Yeah, I kind of agree. Like the first two acts, it's it's comedy debate, comedy debate, philosophy, right? And you get to that third act and you're you get the twist and you're expecting it all to come together, and the way he tries to pull it together, it it doesn't set well. So, any any other final thoughts on this one? Nope. Nope. no. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll ask you guys the question. Um, Jose, I'll start with you. We just got done having a lively debate over 1980s, yes. the ninth configuration. Is this film a bomb?
3: It is not a bomb. Okay. You should, everybody should check it out. Awesome. <laughs> Have you
2: ever called anything a bomb on here, Jose?
3: Yes. I, yeah, he has. Wait, didn't I do, didn't I call Popstar a bomb?
1: Did he? I have to go back and look. We we keep track like of it all. I just got to go back and look at it. Okay. I think I called that a bomb, and I think... I think you've had a couple that were a bomb that surprises. Top
2: Dog? Did I hate oh, Top Dog? Okay. Come, come, on, on, come on, Jose. That's, that's not a real movie.
3: Yeah.
1: <laughs> all right, Brad. 1980s, ninth configuration. Where are you laying in on this?
2: Uh, I'm going to say not a bomb. I I I like the challenge of this film, even if it doesn't come together as grand as Blatty wanted it to. Still made me think.
1: Okay. I'm going to give my first bomb of the year. Uh, I, I noticed I haven't given one Was out. that
2: your first bomb of the year?
1: This is my what? first We're almost
2: halfway
3: done. Yeah. You made it almost six months in, Troy. I know.
1: Um, and I should love this thing. I should. we are almost in Q3, Troy. I know. But I'm, I'm going to say I love... Q3, you did go back to work. <laughs> I did. <laughs> I, look, I... I love the story. I love Stacy Keach's performance. Um, I know I spent a lot of time ragging on things, but uh, I, I love the production design. To be quite honest, that that castle's amazing, and the fact yeah. that they set everything there. But I think ultimately, while there are things I really love about this film, and if you should see it, you you know the Stacy Keach performance, that bar mm-hmm. scene, while while it feels kind of weird, it's a standout scene. Um, there are things to like about this film cohesively. And, and I'll say this for me, it's marginally not a bomb. I would almost put it in the, it's, I'm sorry, let me say that again. It's marginally a bomb. I yeah. would almost put it in the, not a bomb category, but I can't, I just can't give myself, um, the mental capacity to say, take the first two acts in that third act. And do I get the resolution that should be out of a film like this, in my opinion. No, it, it doesn't work for me, but it's marginally a bomb, in my opinion. But it's still. We bomb. should
3: also we should also mention that Blatty shows up in this as oh, he does, yeah, as a person who you think is the psychiatrist um, of the uh, castle, but then turns out just to be a crazy guy that stole the actual psychiatrist's pants.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, writer, director, producer, and star of his own film. Um, yeah. Hey, look, I think, I I think his stories are best when somebody else directs it. That's my opinion.
3: Yeah. You might, you might have something there.
1: (laughs) Uh, Brad. Yes, sir. we We should put the data in and fire up robo reviewer, right?
3: Oh my god, yes. I've here been waiting for this. Go. Okay,
1: here we go. <laughs> I have no idea what this thing's going to spit out. Um, we'll
0: see. Here we go. Hello. I'm make
3: the of this the cross. is
0: the only reason you would want to listen to this lousy podcast. So here is Robo Reviewer 1000's review of The Ninth Configuration. <laughs> wow. Beep. 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 In his transcendent film The Ninth Configuration, director William Peter Blatty ventures into the depths of the human psyche. Constructing a complex narrative that challenges our perceptions of sanity and the very nature of existence itself. Inspired by the novel Twinkle, Twinkle, Killer Kane written by Blatty himself, (laughs) this (laughs) 1980s gem emerges as a thought-provoking masterpiece that lingers in the mind long after the credits roll. Blatty, renowned for his work on the seminal horror classic The Exorcist, deftly deviates from the expected genre tropes, instead delving into a deeply philosophical exploration of the human condition. His narrative centers around an enigmatic mental institution nestled in a remote castle, where troubled military personnel are sent for rehabilitation. At the heart of this asylum lies Colonel Kane, Stacy Keach, a man wrestling with his own inner demons. The Ninth Configuration not only mesmerizes viewers with its haunting visuals but also enchants them with its poignant performances. Keach delivers a tour de force portrayal as Colonel Kane, capturing the complexities of a man teetering on the precipice of sanity with remarkable nuance. His tortured expressions and introspective soliloquies echo the depth of his character, leaving audiences mesmerized by his haunting presence. The film's supporting cast is equally stellar, breathing life into a host of eccentric characters who populate the asylum. Scott Wilson shines as Captain Kutchaw a disillusioned astronaut struggling to reconcile his experiences in space with the banalities of everyday life. Wilson's emotional range is extraordinary, infusing his character with both vulnerability and a simmering rage that threatens to consume him. Blatty's direction is a revelation, seamlessly oscillating between moments of profound introspection and unexpected bursts of dark humor. He deftly navigates the labyrinthine corridors of the asylum, juxtaposing bleakness with moments of unexpected beauty. The cinematography, with its chiaroscuro lighting and hauntingly desolate landscapes, lends an ethereal quality to the film, reinforcing its philosophical themes. One of the film's most remarkable strengths lies in its philosophical discourse, which echoes the existentialist musings of Jean-Paul Sartre and Albert Camus. Blatty poses profound questions about the nature of belief, the existence of God, and the fragile boundary between sanity and madness. Through gripping dialogues and existential monologues, he challenges viewers to confront their own existential dilemmas, inviting them to explore the darker recesses of their souls. The ninth configuration is a testament to Blatty's formidable storytelling prowess. He effortlessly weaves together various narrative threads, leading viewers through a labyrinth of psychological twists and turns that culminate in a breathtaking climax. The film's climactic moments are both cathartic and emotionally devastating, leaving audiences awestruck and contemplative. In conclusion, the ninth configuration is a cinematic gem that demands recognition and admiration. Blatty's unparalleled ability to blend thought-provoking philosophy with captivating storytelling sets this film apart from its contemporaries. With mesmerizing performances, haunting visuals, and an exploration of the human condition that resonates long after the final frame, the ninth configuration firmly secures its place as a timeless classic of the 1980s and a testament to the power of cinema to delve into the depths of the human soul. End. Review. Powering. Down. (laughs) What? Did Blady write this
3: review? (laughs) Randy... (laughs) Randy bot went
2: crazy. Uh,
1: so in the analytics world, we we have there a saying back again. We uh, oh, garbage in garbage out. It is, you know, garbage in garbage out. So <laughs> there you go. That's this is why you can't trust AI. Right? I should have oh. hit, hit it
2: twice before I put in the data. Maybe. It yeah, was,
1: Jesus.
2: Maybe I, next time I'll try. I'll I'll power it down and. Put it, turn it back that on. That was the
1: most pretentious AI review I've heard. Wow! God bless you, Randy Bot. That uh, was fabulous, Randy Bot. Randy Bot. Okay, so <laughs> I, I I want to do something really quick since I've I've got you two on here. Um, one of the things I had shared at the last episode was a little clip when we were talking about Superman Four. We were, we were doing this sort of day drinking thing. Um, we stopped at the comic book store and and talked to our good friend Caesar. Uh, These are. Our our good friend of the show, uh, my bestest friend, Kevin, had come up with this idea. He was really curious about could we predict the bombs that are coming out over the summer? Um Ooh. and and he actually put me on the spot and we did a couple of recordings. I haven't been able to to get the the sound to sound good yet. I'll I'll get it done. Um, and plus you can hear like at the first bar versus the last bar. We went through the whole movie <laughs> schedule of this year and Uh, There there are some doozies, but I thought this would be a fun game because it's Kevin's idea. And I want to start with the month of June and I want to give you guys a list of films and I'm going to give you five seconds each. You're going to predict of the films coming out in June, which ones are going to bomb or which ones are going to do okay at the box office. Okay, so you ready? And I didn't use May because I know technically... Summer movie season kind of starts at the beginning of May. Now we've already had guardians of galaxy three, uh, fast X, little mermaid came out, um, this weekend. Yeah. Uh, and so I thought, Hey, let's, let's get something that hasn't come out yet. Let's make some predictions. And then after the summer's over, we'll, we'll see where we land. All right. Sound good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You guys ready? Ready. All right. Here we go. So the first one up and you just got to tell me, is it going to be a bomb or not a bomb okay and we're, and we're talking box office not critic okay? okay all right first one spider-man across the spider-verse not a bomb oh. not a bomb not a bomb okay for both second one the boogeyman bomb not a bomb not a because it only from. costs
2: like two million dollars
1: stephen king bomb okay all right transformers rise of the beasts bomb bomb both bomb on that one okay is this like free association <laughs> yeah uh so next one is the flash bomb not a bomb oh boy okay
3: I also spoil the cameo in there
1: uh Elemental the Disney film
3: bomb bomb
1: two bombs on that one okay the blackening horror comedy coming out I don't even know what that is bomb <laughs> Jose says bomb what about you Brad the
2: blackening is this a culinary uh,
1: horror the blackening yeah I'll
2: yeah. go I'll go I'll go bomb as well
1: bomb okay
2: because mm-hmm. I have my ear to the ground and if I haven't heard of a film that's coming out then the general public has definitely not heard of okay okay what is the blackening go watch Jesus. the
1: trailer go watch the trailer no <laughs> hard feelings the comedy oh that's
2: that's the Jennifer
1: Lawrence yep. film I'm gonna say that's a bomb not a bomb bomb and everybody loves sexy uh, jennifer lawrence all right how about this one asteroid city the wes anderson film bomb okay bomb. not a bomb not a bomb uh oh this is a big one for me uh indiana jones and the dial of destiny
2: not a bomb not a bomb really financially i think critically it's going to get hammered but even as bad as that last one was it still made <laughs> a lot of money Sorry.
1: Crystal yeah, I, Skull i I'm going to show my hand on this one. Um, I think this is going to break my heart. I I think it's going to bomb. Mm. It, it
2: could yeah. It, it costs a possible. lot
1: of. I mean, I think I I I think our good friend it's probably
2: got to do like 700. So it's it's
1: one of those films we've talked about this like Fast X, Little Mermaid, etc. These budgets are out of control of like 350 yeah. million, etc. Indiana Jones had a ton of reshoots and and I think it's got to hit like 800 900 million. In order to break even. Um, I think like Fast X, it's probably going to make all its money overseas versus here. Uh, well, the, the other thing <clears> that <throat> that I, I don't think it's going to be a good film. I'm going to say that now. I think it's going to be an Indiana Jones and in name only, which is going to piss yeah. me off. Um, and then Mission Impossible moved up its release date. And I think Paramount knows this is going to bomb. So that that's my Damn. conspiracy theory. Yeah.
2: They come coming for that.
1: Yeah. Last one, which I, I don't know anything about this film, but apparently it's a theatrical release. It's done by the producers of how to train your dragon, etc. Ruby Gilman, teenage Kraken bomb or not a bomb. Oh, bomb. Bomb. Okay. Bomb. Bomb. <laughs> All right. I've recorded your answers, gentlemen. Uh, I'll try and, and get the recording when Kevin and I went through this so I can put mine on there. Cause I don't, I don't want to second guess.
3: Oh my god, uh, I can't wait! So on a level, on a level of slurring, the Caesar clip being like on a scale of one to ten, the Caesar clip being like maybe a four.
1: How were, how
3: is your slurring
1: meter on this? Well, let's just say when we get to the end, uh, like the December, it's bad. So, <laughs> but the, the problem is the audio didn't come through real clean because we we're some noisy places while we were doing this, but. Kevin had a great idea and I'm like, this is fantastic because one of the things Brad and I typically would do at the end of the year is we'll, we'll pick films that bombed this year and ones that we want to talk about or um, that are our favorites. Yes, so I say,
2: Babylon is already on the list and you and well, Babylon sort of was last year,
1: wasn't Woo-hoo.
2: it? Oh, well, yeah, yeah, but sorry.
1: Yeah. So Woo-hoo. it doesn't count for this year, Brad. Sorry. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. Um. um yeah. Wait, Troy, will you, will you type this out and I will do this on watch skip plus with red
1: okay perfect yeah so i'm (laughs) gonna i'm gonna get these answers real quick for spider-man across the universe both of you said not a bomb for the boogeyman brad said not a bomb you said bomb transformers rise of the beast both of you said it was gonna bomb the flash brad said that was gonna bomb but you jose said not a bomb elemental you both picked a bomb uh the blackening both of you picked a bomb no hard feelings brad said it's gonna bomb jose said not a bomb asteroid city brad said not a bomb jose said that one's gonna bomb both of you thought indiana jones was going to be a not a bomb and ruby gillman teenage kraken is going to be a bomb did i did i get that accurate sounds right awesome yeah. all right we'll keep track of this uh brad we got some i don't
2: f- feel good about indiana jones but
1: <clears throat> yeah okay uh we got some feedback you want me to read it real quick please do Ooh. okay it's from our good friend michael So the subject of his email was uh, faster than a speeding bomb. So I think he's talking about last week's (laughs) movie. All right. I recently revisited the Batman films, which have a lot in common with the Superman films. The first two films are great. The third film's okay, but it falls apart with the fourth film. But unlike the terrible Batman and Robin, which doesn't feel like a Batman film and has nothing good about it, Superman 4 does at least feel like what had come before and it's a lot better too, despite its many faults. I watched quest for peace a lot on video. I love the final battle on the moon and the film in general, unaware of what had gone on behind the scenes back in 1987. No one sets out to make a bad film and you have to wonder how this would have turned out if the budget hadn't have been slashed. It's similar to what happened to star Trek V: the final frontier, another film which I have a soft spot for and will defend to my dying days. I think we're going to talk about that one at some point.
0: (laughs) For those that might face,
1: I'm making okay. Uh, This is this is where it gets really good. For those that might be interested, there is a fan edit called Superman Redeemed, which combines Superman Three and Quest for Peace, in which Nuclear Man Scratch makes Superman turn evil. It basically removes all of the Richard Pryor supercomputer footage, and it's a more cohesive film as a result. As always, keep up the good work, Michael. Man, I, I need to go see that cut now. That's awesome. Ooh, yeah.
3: Thank you, Michael. And I was not laughing at your opinion of Star Trek V. I just know I did not enjoy Ooh. Star Trek V.
1: Yeah, that's uh I'm so I couldn't
2: tell you a thing about Star Trek V.
1: It yeah. was not entirely successful. I just remember that scene about <laughs> why is why is God asking for a spaceship or something like that? Um <laughs> oh and, and the boots. That movie
3: was a mess. The boots a huge
1: the levitating boots were they had the green screen in the back or i don't know what it was and
3: wait Shatner directed that yeah
1: yeah <laughs> <laughs> we got to talk about that thing uh jose what's going on over at watchskip plus
3: uh well after we completely tore apart fast x um we ended up choosing not to review the little mermaid which would have been the easiest choice i suppose and we went with something called The Machine. Oh, um, Burt Kreischer. Yeah. Yes. Uh, who I had no idea who Burt Kreischer was. And then I low-key discovered that he was one of the voices on Two Bears, One Cave, which I had been listening to I for mean, quite some time.
2: He's one of the hosts, yes.
3: <laughs> yes, I know. And yet, for whatever – I guess because I'm in love with Tom Zagora, I think he's um. sexy, so I just kind of ignored Burt. But, uh, yeah, we, we reviewed The Machine – interesting interesting film
2: (laughs) mark
1: hamill that should be coming out thursday
3: yes mark hamill
2: Hamill is in that
1: okay we're a fan of his stand-up around here he's he's quite a funny i've
2: I've seen him stand up before it it's we saw him live my wife and i it was pretty funny really you saw him live
3: that's awesome Mm -hmm. i checked out um i did not check out the machine because i didn't want to ruin the movie but i watched two of his specials and found myself laughing awesome i do like
1: that guy <laughs> uh Brad what yes I I think next episode's a special one because I it,
2: it is is
1: my pick so you want to and, but you and I came to this one um it was pretty unanimous cuz we were trying yeah, to usually, find a film like what what should we do for the big one
2: Yeah, usually for big episodes which next week is our 3 year anniversary episode um, <gasps> wow congrats so Thank Troy you. and I came together and we are doing Grindhouse from two thousand and seven, so yeah. we will do both Planet Terror and Death Proof. Yes,
1: that's going to be an interesting watch. So I'm that just, theater I, experience was my jam. I'm assuming you have the Blu-ray has both with the trailers and everything else, right? Absolutely, yes. Okay, so that's what we're going to be. We're not going to be watching the movies individual. We're going to try and get through it all in one it's, setting. That's great. Grind, it's Grindhouse. It's Grindhouse. So we're watching them back to back, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay yeah uh what else uh you want to talk about some other podcasts everybody else should listen yeah to? so
2: friends of the podcast would include gentleman's guide to midnight cinema watch skip plus the vhs files night of the living podcast the backlook cinema podcast the mixtape podcast and raiders of the podcast
1: Sweet. If you Excellent. want to be as cool as Michael and send some feedback and, and listen, folks, the ninth configuration, I think is one of those films. Uh, what makes it a, a fun movie to watch with like-minded people is the debate, like what we just had this evening. I mean, I, I think it wouldn't have been a, as good of an experience if all of us were like, Oh, this thing's amazing. I mean, to have a counterpoint to it makes, I mean, if you say anything about this film, it's a good film just because it brings up this discussion. Right. So if, Absolutely. so if you're like the best debater, Troy, what would you be? Uh, no. I'm oh not. my God. Stop. No, Brad. <laughs> okay. But sorry. Keep going. I, no, I, I will let you tell I everybody. I for that. <laughs> yeah. You, see, I know him. I, <laughs> I know him. Uh, Brad, how do people reach out to us to share their thoughts on any of the films that we're talking about? Or, give us recommendations on what we should be talking about.
2: Yeah. That's not a bomb pod at gmail.com or go to not a bomb podcast, hit the contact us button or find us on Facebook, Instagram and
1: Twitter. Yes. Thank you everybody. Also for um, all the social media posts and the back and forth. We, we had a lot of fun talking about Superman four um, with some folks and uh, that was a blast. I I was surprised how many people kind of showed up to, to throw a little love that way on that film. I, Kind of thought I was in the minority on it but
2: yeah I I, you know I'm always happy that I mean, people like something <laughs> yeah you know? I mean I mean it's just a movie at the end of the day it's just a movie
1: yeah and if hey look if you're if you're in the Maryland Pennsylvania area uh we just found out so one of the things that I did over the weekend is uh two and a half hours from us out in Layton, Pennsylvania there's the Mahoning drive-in so what they specialize in is showing original 35 millimeter prints of older films uh, and they do themes usually of the weekend. So Memorial weekend is always zombie fest and we got to go out there and on Saturday night, see day of the dead phantasm two and a little movie we talked about, which was dead heat. And it was a lot of fun seeing that film at the drive-in. But if you plan ahead in August, they are doing a dusk till dawn Saturday. Go to the Mahoning website to find out the exact date. I think it's the 12th, but don't quote me on that. I believe it is 12th. Okay. This is what they're showing. The reason why I'm bringing them up is we just recently talked about this film, but they're doing canon films. Get this lineup. You're starting out with American Ninja. Then you move over to um, what's the breakdancing film? Break-in. Break-in. One of my favorites. That's right. You do break-in. Then the movie that we just recently talked about masters of the universe, they're showing that as the third film. And then uh, the fourth one is a Charlie Bronson, like uh, eighties action or kinjite the forbidden something. Mm. Um, I I think I rented on a VHS at one point, but yeah, they're, they're actually doing Canon films from Dusk till dawn. And the cool thing about the Mahoning is like when we were there uh, for Saturday, the guy who played uh, Bub the zombie from Day of the Dead was there doing autographs. Exhumed Films was there selling merchandise. Uh, it's the best popcorn you'll find in the East Coast. It's amazing. And uh, if you pay an extra 10 bucks, you can actually camp out at the drive-in, which is kind of cool. So go look up the Mahoney drive-in. They got some amazing uh, themes going on. Brad, they do a trauma weekend. I'm sure you would you would love that. No? Okay. trauma. Nope. Uh, like the one I, so they're doing two Jackie Chan movies one night. Get this. They're going to show the cannonball run and cannonball run two on a Saturday. And they're actually having people who ran the cannonball run race are going to be at the drive-in with their cars. So there you go. The actual live illegal race. <laughs> yes. So the Mahoning drive-in, check it out. Uh, yes,
3: actually it's so it is Saturday, August 12th. It's from 6 PM to midnight uh and it's you not midnight. Uh, yeah, that'll I think yeah, I know it, it'll blow that through. Yeah. <laughs> but you can go to Mahoning D I T. So that's M-A-H-O-N-I-N-G-D-I-T.com. There's an events calendar, and then you can get your tickets there.
1: Yeah, I can tell you I will be there for the Cannonball Run movies. There's a Godzilla Fest. I'll be going there one night. I think they're doing um another night, they're doing the haunting, the changeling, and Poltergeist 2. So oh, I think that's God, another one I got carved out. What an excellent. Um, I, I'm telling you, I would live there in October because every weekend their themes that they do are, are pretty crazy. The, the one night they did the exorcist and poltergeist back to back. That was, Ooh. that was phenomenal. Uh, but yeah, I just, I wanted to make sure I plug them because it, it's such a cool place. And if you like movies, it, it's in the Pocono mountains, great scenery. You'll love it. Uh, Brad, Jose, anything else you want to plug or talk about?
3: Nope. Nope. I've, I mean, so Wild Dreams Pod, they guessed it on our John uh, Wick episode, but their epic takedown of Fast 10 was phenomenal. I think I went into an asthma attack listening to that
1: episode. Oh, I saw your close guys are, on that.
3: Those guys are funny.
1: I have to listen to that. Cool. <laughs> All right, folks. Well, I don't know if you're listening in the morning, the afternoon, or evening. Thanks for downloading the episode and listening to us talk about the ninth configuration. Come back next week for our three-year anniversary. We're going to talk about Rodriguez and Tarantino and uh, do a little grindhouse. So we'll see you then. Don't
2: lose your head.